This episode of The BIP Show is brought to you by OpenTrader. OpenTrader is Australia's most competitive, self-directed retail trading platform for professional traders and those who want to invest like a pro from only $5 per trade. It provides chess-sponsored trading accounts and award-winning charts, combined with ongoing educational support and training. You'll get full autonomy on how you select stock and detailed info on performance across multiple metrics to help you make robust decisions. Open Trader. Invest like a pro from only $5 per trade. Hello, you're listening to The BIP Show. BIP is for business, investing and policy. That's what we're here to talk about. I'm Paul Colgan, Director at CT Group, and I'm here as always with James Whelan, Investment Manager at VFS Group. How are you now, Paul? Great to be here. Uh, Ken Vexler will be back with us uh, soon, joining us from Amsterdam, uh, but we're joined uh, this afternoon, um, uh, on Thursday, the June the 3rd, uh, 2021, um, by uh, the Director of Agri-Strategy at the Commonwealth Bank, Tobin Gorey. Now, Tobin writes incredibly insightfully and often with a great deal of wit about um, uh, global agriculture markets. Uh, I can't commend uh, his research to you enough, but also uh, gives me my favourite way to introduce a podcast guest uh, ever that I've ever had. I've I've only done it once before um, a few years ago, but I get to say this. What's the story, Tobin Gorey? Well, as I always have said, there's a big story. It's not just about the morning either, obviously. So uh, um, where can I start there? Um, a quick, quick run around the grounds there for you? Well, yeah, in one second. Let me just start with how you kicked off your quarterly, um, where you um, were talking about um, the recent sort of decline in commodity prices that we had after a rally last year. Uh, and the note started off for, you know, talking about May, about, you know, having... Um, the rally were, had lost some support for macro-driven worries about inflation, uh, mar- uh, although markets, you pointed out, can be fickle. Financial markets frequently have different futures flash before their very eyes. We expect inflation worries to persist, so investors can also re- return to a theme. Momentum has also been lost for the rally for now, but can easily return if prices turn higher again. Now, if you'd acted on that uh, and positioned accordingly, you would have been doing rather well since uh, that came out. Yes, yeah, so far so good. Um, yeah. yeah, so I, I, I guess the the view we had of it was that um, you know there's ever going to be some sell off in this because you know, markets just never move in a straight line. Um, but we think there's you know a pretty good fundamental scaffold underneath from the micro level in uh, in for a lot of particularly the crops, grains, and oil seeds. So they're they're looking pretty good at the moment. Their prices are up sort of into the you know high part of the middle range or high. Um, we think they can. They'll probably stay up there. And they can probably go higher than they are now. There's still a big difference between prices, old crop prices for season 2020, and for next year's prices. So the upside there is in the 2021 prices rather than the 2020 prices. Um, you know, the only sort of crop in that group who hasn't really done very well is cotton. Um, you know, the price is actually up, but we don't really see a lot of upside for it. There's still a fair bit of post-COVID supply to fix off in that one. Mm. So where does the uh, um, key demand? For cotton come from now? It's obviously clothing um, and, and and textiles. I think the you know, when there's uncertainty around, uh, people can delay consumption of those things. So right, okay. you know, if you're um, you know, you can not buy the extra t-shirt. You can stretch out you know sheets from two years ago for another year. Um, you don't need to buy new tablecloths 
if you're not doing things. So it, it's kind of the own, it's the industrial agriculture. It's only one that's really got genuine cyclical leverage in it because people people don't delay food consumption, mm. but they do delay you know semi-durable stuff like I have, cotton items. We have been able to get away with wearing the same tracksuit pants and T-shirt for the last 12 months. Lockdown pants. Lockdown yep. pants, and I can't invite anyone around to my place, so I don't need to get a new tablecloth. But um, mm. uh, what was next, beef? Yes, um, so I mean, beef prices, big differential story there because they're not really that high yet, globally speaking. And I say yet, um, those uh, grain price I was talking about before going high might change that, but they are very high here in Australia, so record levels um, on virtually every kind of measure, and that is simply because we're about we've denuded the herd here uh, over drought me drought years, particularly in the uh, sort of northern cattle system. Um, and people are now rebuilding because we've had some rain through La Nina last year. Can we revisit that later in the show? Like yeah, how it. the herd rebuilding and yeah. um, works north and south, etc. Because it's really interesting and also weather systems, etc. Really, yeah. I'm so fascinated by it. And so beef good, how's the lamb? Uh, it also pretty good. It's, it's come off a little bit because it's simply because the supply dynamic there turns a bit quicker just because of the biological cycle of the animal. Um, but the price is still pretty high. Um, it's you know, still... You know, that, that Sunday lamb roast with Tom Cruise is still looking pretty expensive. And I guess, to, yeah, to finish off the full rounds, if you get to dairy, dairy prices are, you know, WMP prices or whole milk powder prices um, are not high, but they're sort of up in the range there. So, and that is translating through to farm goat milk prices more and more. So people are you know, good seeing probably the highest prices they've seen for several years. Um, the good thing about the dairy for that is that, you know, at the farm level at least is they're getting paid for the milk and... For the time being, the input costs are coming down as well post drought, so oh, okay. profitability yeah, yeah. as well as uh, you know top line revenue. And is that affecting farmers in um, like our farmers here? Because um, I know dairy industry here been through a, a fair period of consolidation, a lot of pressure, a lot of questions about the future viability of different regions, etc. Um, uh, so has that been flowing through to farm gate prices uh, for individual producers here? It has uh, t- to some level, so. The you know the prices of WMP are quite high. Part of that price is some of it is simply a uh, an artifact of how much shipping containers cost at the moment. Um, but there's enough in that price still to flow through. So you know the processes are confident enough to bump their prices up. So you know Saputo and Bega, uh, Fonterra, and I've done that in Australia. Others too as well um, have bumped their prices up. So things are looking better for people. And you know th- there's the processor side competition in that is important. Uh, because there's, you know, we've gone from like a, you know, essentially a, you know, 10, 11 billion litre producer to sort of around about nine-ish, um, and and they have to compete for that milk now, uh, which wasn't the case for a long while. Yeah, it's it's really interesting. I just want to point out, you know, um, just from your quarterly, which is always a great read, but um, I always feel um, at least 5% smarter having read it. Um, uh, and it also, you know, it's very uh, grounding too because it sort of, you know, gets your head back into, you know, this whole thing of like the basics of the global economy, you know, feeding people. Um, and James, I know you're excited to do this show because food has been such a big theme for you over the last couple of years. I did want to mention that, Paul. Um, but uh, um, <laughs> for a year I've been saying we should do a food one. It's the only thing I really know. <laughs> no, James, no, we got something else going on. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Let's talk about crypto. Yeah, um, I've got no, a guy, I've got a guy, <laughs> and he was a lovely guy. I've got a guy who shares the same name as me, and I couldn't understand what either of you were saying. <laughs> That's right. Um, we finally have a food guy. Here. Okay. 
we finally, yeah, yeah, uh, not not just not just not not just a food guy. Uh, so, but but one of the things Tobin was uh, just fascinated, just the reminder, you know, of some of the fundamentals of um, some of the industry, just how big a player New Zealand is in uh, in dairy globally uh, is astonishing. Yeah, I, I, I you don't get the you quite realize how it is because you know effectively. The vast bulk of New Zealand's milk is exported, not as milk, obviously, as product, but especially whole milk powder. Um, I guess the other thing, too, is that dairy is still, to a large degree, in richer countries. Um, so that the cross-border trade in it is not that large. And it's almost like New Zealand is, is, is the first country that's really taking it cross-border. And the means they're doing that by is WMP. So it's been, you know, it's been put into a... Know, a uh, stable, storable state, um, and then used to, to produce goods in other countries and so on. So, and that is, and that's it's kind of a big development. But New Zealand's done very well out of that. Mm-hmm. Um, essentially, they've um, you know, um, sheep have disappeared from New Zealand, um, not disappeared, but there's a lot less of them than there were, and they've been replaced with cattle. Uh, is it because cattle. just profitability? Um, yes, yeah, so I, I think it's the same here in Australia too. We, uh, I mean, our flock, I can't remember. Quite remember the number off the top of my head, but it, you know we're at like you know decades, pl- decades lows in in sheep population, and a lot. And in Australia, that didn't go. Some of that went into uh, other livestock, but predominantly went into cropping instead, just because the nature of the weather here. Actually, so let, let, let's talk about corn. Yes, yeah, corn's kind of, good. It's kind of the epicenter of, of, of what this corn's is. Corn's so good because good corn's example. got this big Chinese thing going on as well. So, so let's talk about corn. Um, you know, huge peak, and then. Take us through it, like okay, and, and then it's peeled back. Now, where, okay. like, what what are the next steps on this one? Okay, so I, the if we take it, uh, just take it back a couple of years, and uh, so we go back to like around to 2012, 2013. Corn price is about eight US dollars a bushel, and that's a very high price for corn. It was a record at that level, and we had tight supply then. There was a huge supply response over 13 and particularly 14, and the prices basically dropped back to being. You know, roughly in the three to four dollar range, which is kind of not super low, but it's in sort of in the low low percentile ranges of what we've seen, and it's been like that um, until basically late late last year. Um, a part of that is that we had a big expansion capacity out of that price response, and what that what that's covering was two things. One was the enormous bulge in demand from US ethanol, and so that's kind of been put in there. So, you know, at one stage. U.S. corn, you know, forty to forty-five percent of it would go into ethanol, but but the output has jumped so much now that it's down to a bit over a third, so mm. say thirty-six percent, something like that. And the other thing it covered was a big increase in feed demand. Um, and all that feed is obviously going to livestock, particularly beef, chickens, um, and obviously um, hogs as well. Yeah. So so it it, it kept went up there. The thing is, the capacity was large. And it was probably too, probably larger than was really needed. Most capacity shifts are usually done in big lumps. They generally get ahead of where the demand is. Uh, so, you know, going through the 2000 season 2009, we had a few worries about crops there. Um, we, we lost a bit there. But, but 2019 was a year when we ran down inventory quite a bit. So going into 2020, 2020, you didn't need to lose a lot from crops to actually shift the inventory down into into from neutral to tight territory, yeah, yep. and that, so that, that's really that's what happened. So now my take on this is that, and this is you know, debatable, obviously, but my take on this is that we didn't really have such a bad crop year in 2020. What we were was we had low inventory, we were pretty close to to where we are with capacity. So now looking into 2021, you know, coming out of 2020, we're still revising down crops, particularly Brazilian corn crop is, you know, it starts at 120 million for the year. 
it's been revised. I think the number now, you know, consensus number is probably, the range is probably a bit above 100 million to somewhere below 90 million. Um, and if it gets down to that, that is very low levels and you're coming out of 2020 with really, really tight supply. So it not that it doesn't matter what happens in 2021, um, but for a, a, a large range of crops you might see out of, t- out of 2021 season, so across corn, across the US and across Europe, so all producers that we're at the start of now, it's got to be a large crop to actually push you back into comfortable supply territory. So, do you think that we're still in red, yellow zone? Yeah, I think we are. So yeah. it's in it's you know it's 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 you know, it's you know, deep orange. Do you so want to talk about La Nina? Yeah, well, I, I think that, that was certainly part of the story. Yeah. Um, uh, you know, it, like in Australia here last year, it helped enormously because yeah. we ended up with you know a massive winter crop. That and was that, one. Yeah, remember I picked it. Mm. Yeah, La Nina's here. Yeah. America goes into drought, they're going to be in trouble, we're going to get some amazing rainfall, and yeah. and we have. Yeah, I, but it, yeah, it is. And, and, and so you get swings of roundabouts, Judge. Yeah. That, 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 that's right. But it's, the thing is, the amount we didn't miss it, we missed out on life. So we had, we got obviously having a problem with Brazil, as I mentioned earlier. We lost a bit of Brazilian and, and some more Argentinian soybeans. Uh, China had a, a bad year with corn. We're not sure about how much because we really don't know what the numbers are. Chinese numbers. Yep. And uh, we lost quite a bit of wheat out of Europe last year as well. So th- th- they were the problems last year, but they're not massive problems. And, and as I say, they didn't really need to be to push you in there because it was on the edge anyway and it's pushed it down there. So w- what you've seen now is those prices up there. So you've seen, uh, you know, old crop 2020 corn didn't quite get to eight bucks again, but it was well into the sevens. Um, and for new crop stuff, it got up above six, but sort of it's mid fives now. So, um, so. That point where it's re- reaching eight dollars again is it's reminiscent of that 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 period where the supply was tight. Now we don't have an ethanol bulge this time, um, and the controversial part about this is so I'm talking about the supply side of those crops. There's also the demand side of it. So you mentioned um, China before coming with lots of demand. So they, you know just you know, they've bought licks of seven million and six million tons of new crop corn from the US, yeah. which is very very large, um, but. You, you get that, and the thing is, that demand's unusual, okay, so it's kind of a special factor because they, they lost some crop last year, and also because their livestock sector is it's becoming formalised, so much more so, of the feeding of livestock goes yes. into, um, comes from the market as such, as opposed to food scraps and anything else that small farmers can find to do and so on. So it's an interesting question, right, because, like, the corn has multiple uses, so, um, so say for um, cotton is as one example of um, uh, a commodity where <clears throat> people can put off demand for it, but with corn, um, some of that, particularly over the last couple of decades, has been driven by the the, the new demand has come been driven by technology, right? So the use of ethanol in uh, in cars, in particular. So. So talk to me about that. Like, how does that? So, so does that be create like a new plane of demand, which brings on a eventually uh, brings on a supply response, um, and then you got you know, but eventually that technology will be you know you would imagine uh, it's going to be replaced by something, or it's going to start reducing over the coming decades um, as we get more electric cars and less fuel driven cars, etc. Um, so. Um, is corn unusual in that way that you know you have a particular technology that drives part of its demand equation, or um, are there other uh, commodities that are that are like that? Yeah, I think well, corn has it's a big one for corn, and so probably the only other one that 
um, uh, oil seeds have that to it because they're producing biodiesel, but that um, that footprint is somewhat less. Um, sugar is another one that has that. So Brazil's the biggest producer, and you know they're swinging around half of their sugarcane, the juice that's crossed out of that. Depending on when you when you ask questions, it's kind of like it's more than half ethanol nowadays, and um, and the sugar amount swings up and down depending on what the price is like and the supply demand state in that market. Right, so, so if sugar, sugar yeah. is expensive, the mix will change. Yeah, that's yeah, right. right. And uh, does, does it affect the quality of the product uh, uh, in in terms of the the fuel? No, because they're kind of two different processes. Because it's right, you make the, that decision on that one right at the start of the process. So you basically macerate the cane and crush it, get the juice out of it, and at that point you decide whether it's off to the distillery or it's off to the crystallisation process to produce sugar. Um, the distillery obviously makes the ethanol. So um, you know, it, it's very important in that. So you know, sugar, the sugar market right now, because we're in season, in the main season in Brazil is jumping up and down on the sugar ethanol parity uh, right. as well. So th- it, it is influential there. As a technological thing, I mean, it's about the possibility, but most of these... Uh, big biofuel mandates are policy driven, so um, the, the the car fleet in Brazil is flex fuel, so it can take 100% ethanol or 100% gasoline. Uh, you don't get 100% gasoline there because there's some ethanol blended into that as well. The thing with the US one though is it, it's it is uh, it's it, it kind of mandated. This, they've got to use a certain, certain blend a certain amount of ethanol each year. It's written in a very funny way, um, kind of silly quantity, which is just weird rather than just a blending ratio um but it's it's it, it's kind of locked it is locked in by policy and i think the question becomes you know there's a point of overturn um and it's probably deeply into the future because uh, electric car sales i like I, that will take off and so obviously the energy source of that is not going to be um corn yeah, corn yeah. obviously so the you you have an issue there the thing is even if electric car sales are 100 of car sales soon which might be the case. Um, it takes a long while for the car fleet to turn over, uh, yeah, just yeah. because it, uh, yeah, the cars tend to hang around for years, and so you know that the actual fuel mix is not mine. Should see it. <laughs> <laughs> it's 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 one of uh, many issues that are coming ahead of us because of the car switch that's going on yeah. uh, right now. Well, copper, we were talking about co- talking about like copper, that. talking about EV. I've gone long hydrogen because there's not enough lithium, or uh, but these are all. These are all metallic objects and, and, and probably not in your wheelhouse for this one. So what, what I'm going to ask you in just a second is you mentioned, um, you know, going into the red zone, the yellow zone for supply uh, supply demand or, or in, inventory demand. Just a second, what um, what could potentially be the ones that are oversupplied or undersupplied that's coming up? But first, OpenTrader is Australia's most competitive self-directed retail trading platform for professional traders and those who want to invest like a pro. From only five dollars a trade, Open Trader. Now, what's oversupplied? What's undersupplied? Where is the trade? Because I'm looking at you right now, and I've got a little bit of a taste, a little bit of a taste in my mouth. There could be a trade ahead of us. Short, long. What do we got? Okay, uh, so I call it being long the crops, so the grains, oil seeds. Yep. Um, right now, pretty much across the spectrum there, because it, it, it kind of the skew is the view about this. Really, is that is that. Uh, you lose much crop at all this year, and we're in that in that sort of red zone or close to the red zone where every even a small loss counts. Yep. So, and the chance of you having small losses are quite uh, relatively large. Um, so that that does that. The one that doesn't impress me much still is cotton. It still has um, looking at inventory outside China. It still has 
Um, you know, it's probably 25, 30% more than it is normally. And it'll take, it'll take a good year or so to knock that inventory out. And so you'd really have to have kind of a collapse in cotton planting. Now, that's quite possible uh, in season 2022, say, but that's still a fair way off. So, you know, you really... Uh, its price traction is just not there. It probably doesn't fall a lot because it picks up a bit of the macro trade. So if people allocate to commodities, commodity futures, it has to get some flow. Yes, that's yep. right. Yeah, so it gets that support. So it's not, um, but it kind of um, you know, the, the thing about it, it just becomes more of a spread vehicle against. So it's the sell leg of against other crops and things like that. Um, the uh, the stuff that's um, you know, the stuff that's really highly priced is. I still think there's plenty to go in the gap between finished cattle and young cattle globally uh, is going to have to get larger. Do you want to run us through that? Like, just just talk us through that one. Yeah, I, just I, we're, the, just we're, 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 we're cattle people. Wheelands are, Wheelands are, are cattle people. We've got some uh, some property down in Gippsland, and yeah. so we're very, very keen on the beef prices and the cattle prices there. Do you want to talk us through? Yeah, I just, and it's just because of the wedge of the feed, effectively. So the thing I'm talking about with the grain and so on is it gets more expensive, So, and that, and that, that eventually drives the price up. So now some of the problem with that gets taken by the – by the cattle producers producing lean cattle, you know, pre-fattening and stuff like that. Um, but you just have to pay for it in the end. So if a consumer wants beef, they have to pay for it. Now, that happens globally speaking. Um, the thing here in Australia is because our prices are sky high, as I mentioned already. So mm. a lot of people think they're too high. And I, I sort of see the argument in the sense that um, people think it's a bubble and so on. But, um, you know, I'm sort of more of the school of market is where it trades. I mean, I agree with people that, you know, the price will probably be lower in a year and it'll probably be a lot lower in two years' time, but that's not very helpful. It's kind of like, you know, you, you ask your advice about that. It's kind of like being, you know, asking for directions, being told you wouldn't start from there. So yeah, it's, a, yeah. it's not the very word useful bubble, in that sense. The word bubble yeah, is getting down thrown that around. Road. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. The word bubble is getting thrown around a bit too much on this one. I, th- yeah. I think it's, it's, it's where it should be. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right I, I, yeah, I think you're right. I mean, because yeah. you know, if you take the largest seller and turn it into the largest buyer, um, that's a hell of a swig at a market. So, and yeah, because that very high level for you know, the young cattle, and it, it's obviously there for a reason in Australia. It's not ill founded. It's not that the price will stay up here forever. It won't. No one thinks that, but it could be up there for quite some time. Now, the other thing too is that people think that the price won't go up. If if we've got a Eventually, make our cattle uh, so expensive that no one offshore wants to buy beef here. If the price is going up offshore, then the only result of that can be that the prices go up further here. So we'll get you get another leg here, not so much because the rebuild is intensifying or something like that, but it's just because you've got to stay, uh, you've got to price yourself out of the market because people want to hold cattle, not sell them. Yeah. Uh, otherwise, you know, if our prices drop relative to global prices. Then the processes here want to buy again, and that just creates another leg in the dynamic. That I can I can actually tell you that that right now we are hesitant to hesitant to sell to restock because restocking is actually too expensive right now, and I'm I'm fairly certain that that anecdote is going to be shared across a lot of property around definitely around the east mm. um, side on that one. So it, it 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 is. I mean I'd be I'm I'm a happy to sell, but we, we you can't have empty. Um, not when the grass is this thick, not yeah. when the rain is this amazing. Yeah. And so. I, I think the value in that gets even larger just because it's the the, the, the opportunity cost of the feed on the farm when the feed cost of you know bringing in feed yeah. from grain and so on is it's just much much greater. So that, that 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 imperative drives it even more strongly. Yeah, and you can't get the same you can't get the same quality of beef out of um, grain uh, out of feed that you bring in. It, yeah. it, grass grass is the best way of feeding cattle. And it's and and the other part of it too is that you know there's you know we're talking I'm talking some of the price in the commodity into beef but uh, you know 
the specs you're talking about there is like people have very committed programs of feeding and grading, so so they get and they have they have to deliver these things, that, and they're very very reluctant to to deviate um, their feed rations and so on. So they're, they're not trapped, but they they will pay up um, for what specific feed, yeah. yeah for specific types of feed. So mm. you know it's not a um, you know, beef is. Uh, it, you know, it's kind of the mince end of it that mm. that uh, that I sort of uses my basis pricing. Are we expensive or, or cheap? Then that's that is the commodity end of it. But as soon as you start moving into the branded stuff, where there's a lot more quality variation, it stops really being a commodity at the end. So you know, the margins are very, very different. So you look at you look at mince as being your your your, your base area. Yeah, and I, th- I think you've always got to do it there because it's the most tradable thing around. And otherwise, um, it becomes it just like I say, it stops being a commodity at that stage. And, and you know, the, the, the discussion of, you know, prices being too high is, in some sense, it is a, you talk about it in a commodity way, but when you're talking about a supply chain that has a lot of control over its output, and like it actually can vary um, the quality, it's not, it's not manufacturing exactly, but it's, but it's, but it just, there's a lot more judgment. There's more inputs and other stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So if you paid X for cattle, you've got, there's a lot of other variables you can play with. Um, you're not just trapped by the weather and the price as such. Your inputs um, can be can be played with somewhat, and 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 the pressure of the probability that comes with that is that people will, you know, innovate and think of new ways to do it. So it's not a it's not not quite as simple as um, you know growing a crop where you decide how much fertilizer you put in and so on. There's not that much you can do on that front. Crops a crop. Yeah, crops a crop. Yeah. yeah. Right. So um, c- can I ask you a um, put on your civilian hat for a second and. Um, <clears throat> question. It's a very selfish, but uh, uh, also I'm sure be of interest to our readers. How do you think about buying a steak? Well, oh, great, great question. Um, I um, I try to have a steak about once a week. It's kind of a, a bit of a ritual at home. Is that um, most Saturdays? Well, that stop as my children have got older, they go out now and just leave me there um, <laughs> to eat all the steak. <laughs> you eat all the steak. Yeah. Who's going to eat all the cheaper. steak, Dad? Yeah, yeah. but you got to have. A, <laughs> Someone's going to have to. So um, <laughs> you know, you got to have you have steak and Shiraz, preferably from Clare Valley. Sure, the Shiraz, the steak I'm not so fussy about as long as it's quite thick. And the interesting thing about you see you see in shops is that um, I end up going to butchers because I, I don't I don't buy it that often, but I'm going to butchers because. As the price has gone up so much, every steak on the supermarket shelf, on your regular meat shelf, has got you know thinner and thinner over time. Yeah. And um, you know that just uh, I, because my cooking skills aren't very good, I need a lot of insurance against overcooking it. <laughs> so, thick, 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 how do you how, how are you can, can we go over this? Yeah, of course. Fun. Yeah. Well, how, how are you cooking it? I got I got my recipe. We'll go around. But how are you? How are you doing yours? Okay, so it's like uh, so the, the process is get out of the fridge about half an hour before you want to cook it. Yeah, Let's bring the temperature Room up. Room temperature. Yep. Um, put on a piece of paper towel, soak up any excess moisture. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, sitting there, go and turn the barbecue on until it's basically nuclear hot. Yeah, um, four hundred Fahrenheit's about where I. Yeah, that's it. right. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just but somewhere below the melting point of the metal and yeah, stuff. Anyway, good, at least. Good. Yeah. And then um, quick brush with some – take the, off the paper towel, quick brush with some olive oil, olive oil on both sides. No and salt and pepper or anything like that? No? No? Um, it was a very controversial topic in the household. It can be sometimes. So, yes. you know, people think you're over-seasoning and things like that. So I just stepped past and said, right, you can put your own seasoning on. I'm just going to make it post – Post-op seasoning? Yeah, okay, yeah, okay. Yeah, 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 that's yeah, right. Yeah. So, and so it, it's really a very, very simple process. Good. Um, you know, it takes about you – know, it's long enough for me to put, to put it down one side, go inside, take some things inside – um, warm the plates in the microwave and stuff like that, 
and then go back outside, flip it over. You're warming plates in the microwave for the for the steak delivery. Got to put it oh, on a warm plate. You got to put it on a warm plate. It's just it's yeah, it's just sacrilege. Otherwise, That's a new right? one for so. me. Okay. <laughs> okay, and you're only flipping once. Yeah, only flipping once. Um, and you know, generally, um, we like it rare at my place. Yeah. Um, so it doesn't take very long. Um, you know, we have a course to, and we we ask how we want our steak, and when we don't trust the place, we say, "Have you killed it yet?" Yeah. Um, so that, that's, how, that's how, <laughs> how we like ours. Um, but yeah, so it, it doesn't take very long. So being on thick, it's just you know two and a half, three minutes aside. Yep. On the plate, um, generally something simple, a bit of bit of you know sauteed shallots and uh, sauteed mushrooms and something else. So that's um, and you know plenty of salt and pepper. Yep. S and P post op. Yep. Glass of Shiraz from the Clear Valley. Yep. That's, yeah, right. that's, that's right. the way it is. I go for a big like I'll get like two sprigs of rosemary. Yeah. Uh, and chop it up super fine, yeah. and uh, or sometimes slice the steak and yeah. put the rosemary on top of that, uh, r- running around in the rosemary and chuck that in a sandwich with some Dijon mustard. And What's a, well, what sort of bread are you using for that? You need some some sort of like you'd have to have a pretty big structure of bread to like a focaccia. Yeah, no, you're like, like mighty white or whatever is like fine. Really, yeah, that yeah, can yeah, hold that. Fu- well, the whole idea is part of the fun of it is f- it all. The, it's all, the, all it's the falling apart, apart within the first twenty <laughs> seconds of that operation. <laughs> you no, know, like you can see through the bread after thirty seconds. It's like gone transparent for me. Okay. I'm a room juice. Uh, room, room temperature, four hundred degrees Celsius. Salt and pepper. Uh, lo- a lot of salt and pepper. I'm a salty sort of guy. Brazilian sort of thing that I was taught ages ago, but um, super hot. And I'm actually I've just become a a couple of turns convert. What I know, I'll flip it. I'll flip it a few times. And one side, um, uh, I can't wait to tell everybody about this. 45 It's about. He 30, turns his stakes like five times. 35, 35, <laughs> 35 seconds each. You see, 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 see. One, two, three, four. About a minute each. Probably not. Actually, more like 30, 45 seconds each. Okay. Um, straight off. One minute in foil. Down the hatch. Five minutes in foil. <clears throat> but yeah, about okay. that. I'm hungry. I'm hungry. <laughs> yeah. It depends. Might get a bit, a bit bit of rest time in the oven while I, you know, you know, um, put out the rest of the stuff and things like that. So the heat of place. Do you know? Do you know what was great last year? Well, like there was nothing great about last year, but one of the things that was different was how the price of some beef cuts absolutely collapsed, uh, and our local butcher that we buy from was selling tomahawk steaks. That would normally like one kilo uh, giant things. Um, you know, you could club a bear to death with them. <laughs> and and uh, uh, the he, um, he he was selling them for thirty bucks, regardless of weight. He just was which would usually go for about one hundred and twenty or something. Like that. Yeah, uh, yeah, you can yeah. they can at at some yeah. times and be over a hundred dollars. And like I wouldn't be buying them, but uh, yeah, there was like two Thursdays in a row. Um, during the bad times when we had uh, tomahawk steaks. Sear it on both sides and chuck it in the oven for half an hour. And Sounds lovely. Yeah. I, I guess the other thing about those things is that that was one of the consequences of the COVID was that because so much food service was shut down, a lot of those cuts and stuff that, that would normally, just food in general, but cuts that would normally prepare, be prepared by someone with a lot more expertise than myself anyway. So you, you go to a restaurant for it and you, you someone who actually you know, cooks professionally. Yeah. Um, they ended up in the in the retail stream. Well, you know, uh, cooked by somebody who's like what you were saying is you know you buy steaks um, that are kind of um, you know Tobin proof, like the yeah. same as you know, <laughs> like I buy steaks that I'm not going to screw. I margin, I margin of error. <laughs> the, um, spe- speaking of the guys who are cooking steaks and who are very good at what they do, seasonal labour. Shortages. Yep. You, let's um, have a little poke at this one at the yeah, moment. Big, big part in your note recently, and obviously a huge factor uh, has been for years uh, in 
the industry in Australia. Um, but now all of that is still like it's become a live issue and a lot of dynamics there. How bad is it? It's it's been very very difficult because I, I think people have lost um, you know, substantial amounts of money because they either had to leave stuff to rot on trees or they've left it in the ground or whatever. So um, people have found different workarounds, but just the scale of it is you know, quite large. So there's you know they say depending on what you ask the time of the year that you know, a bar's numbers are we have 100 to 150 thousand seasonal workers of various types. So that's not just picking; that's also you know, um, you know uh, harvesting labour, planting labour, or shearers and things like that as mm-hmm. well. Um, so that, that that's a lot of that. And, and I think um, it was around somewhere between forty to seventy thousand of those. Again, depending on when you ask, were um, uh, offshore workers. So there were seasonal workers, but there were people who come into Australia. Now, it's it, the, the thing with this guy is, and the main point of what we're discussing in there is that you know the. Um, the people who want to go and do those jobs, because they're not that highly paid, but they're handy money in, 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 for some people. And thing is, but they suit the backpacker thing perfectly, right? So they're travelling. Um, you know, they're already left home anyway, so they're not really based anywhere as such. They're travelling, so they don't really mind upping sticks for, you know, a fortnight, a month or something to go and get some extra spending money. Yeah. And, and also they're, they're, the time's really flexible too. So they can, you know, whether they travel up to, um, travel up to sort of, you know the Barrier Reef and and another okay, like, for sugar, yeah, or, yeah, all that sort of stuff. Whether whether they uh, they they travel up there for the, at in a particular week doesn't really matter to them that much. So they're quite happy to to do those things. But yeah. you absent those people, and yeah, you know, there's like you know uh, hundred hundreds of thousands, one hundred odd thousand coming in, and that sort of collapsed to about fifteen percent of what it was during the first full year we had numbers for. Um, so they, they, they were really struggling to, to get those workers in. So, And we struggled to get them locally just because that group of people, um, there's not that many of them locally just because it, like most people live here, they live here, so they don't, they've probably already got jobs. Um, even when you're in lockdown, you're on JobKeeper and things, the uncertainty with it is that, you know, if the lockdown comes off, your job, you've got to go back to it. So you're not going to give up a permanent job just for, you know, a couple of weeks of fruit picking um, or, you know, just... Or, Good point, but they made it sound so easy as if everyone could just go and pick grapes all of a sudden. Yeah, it, it, and it does. But, but I think the, the fact that so many uh, were backpackers already just tells you about the – like you're effectively importing that, doing yeah. that. So it became a way uh, for people from many countries overseas. But the, the vast bulk of them are from Europe, yeah. broadly, broadly defined, and North America. Um, and they're coming here and travelling, and it's a, way, it's a way for them to pay to do it. The other group that is there is Pacific Islanders, so people from, and also from Timor as well. Um, there's more of those coming. The, the Northern Territory mango industry as you got together and brought in a group of workers and now they, they this was really almost during, not high COVID, but, but you know, uh, it was pretty, a lot of lockdowns still at this time and they brought them in a couple of weeks beforehand, had them quarantined and things like that. So, you know, clearly there's the expense of flying people in and that's kind of there anyway, but, you know, having, having to basically pay them and put them up for, you know, a two-week quarantine period adds to the cost, but... You know, it, and the, but that just tells you the difficulty of finding uh, labour that you're willing to pay for that. And again, and and th- th- these guys come in from you know Timor, Pacific Islands. Again, it, it's a bit like the fly and fly out workers in in, in mining. Um, those wages they're getting paid here in Australia at those fruit picking jobs 
by their local standards are quite high, so it's worthwhile while they're moving in. So, and I make the analogy to fly and fly out workers in in, in mining because you know, the reason people get paid a lot of money in those camps is it's not really necessarily to do with with the jobs as such. There'll be scales with those jobs, obviously, but the reason even even people at fairly basic levels are getting quite good money is it's just dreadfully inconvenient to spend to be out of your home, away from your family, away from your friends for two weeks out of four. So, you know, if you want people to do that, you've got to pay them. That's yeah. what they do. Now, over to farm prices, um, Tobin, and we're almost winding it up now, I'd say, based on time. But uh, the, uh, the not, not only the anecdotes, but also sort of what I'm seeing as well is that farmland in short supply, I have called it the ultimate uh, non-fungible token because it <laughs> – you can build a building and, and that building, you can copy that building and build as many buildings as you want. You can't replicate farmland. You can't replicate farmland. I've been saying this many times. If you want to own a thing, of all things, probably farmland is the best thing you could own. Now, farmland prices have been rocketing. Um, we've seen this across across the scale. It has come to a stage now where elders um, reported through uh, through a recent uh, a recent sit-down that I, that, that I had with them that – in fact, now value investors are now actually turning away farmland and saying that's a bit too hot for us. So at a time when when you just you know everyone's grabbing everything and farmland is now seeming a little bit too a little bit too hot for for, for proper value investors on, on the farmland side of things. Um, anything to add on that one to, through, through the CBA view? Now I, I think that your note here actually says that maybe if you put it into the context of a, a long term perspective, maybe farmland values maybe should be reassessed. What do you, what do you got of that? Yeah, I, th- I, I think you're right in terms of the, the, the supply of it. So it's not, you, they're not making any more. Mm. Um, the other thing too is there's, there's probably a climate aspect to it as well. So as that shifts, you're actually shifting the nature of the farming you do in the lands. And I think that's a big factor, but, but um, that's a that's a whole other rabbit hole we won't red pill ourselves with now. Um, the uh, I, I guess the thing about the, the prices being too high is, now it is possible the prices are too high to make money off, Um Kind of like the to almost you know, I'm interested to know where I can't really define for myself who the Bargell investor is in this because if you're taking like you know a lot of pension funds from offshore who are defined benefit funds who want you know basically uh, and they come and buy uh, lots of different assets but they do they do buy quite a bit of farmland um, now when you're comparing that to for them comparing it to they're struggling to find anything that's got a positive yield yeah. um, in, in many places around the place. So that's a, that's a relative question for them. So you know, who, who, is, who, is the, who is the marginal buyer? So you talk about the value people are looking at straight out on a, on a you know, kind of a, you know, going concern basis, um, and, and perhaps that's right. Perhaps people are getting discouraged there. But the uh, thing is, as, as we said before, in the case of the cattle, the market is where it is rather than um, – it can be keep going up. Thing is, though, um, in, the, in the in the roughly, well, it's getting on towards not quite twenty years, but you know, fifteen or twenty years now in agriculture, people in Australia have been talking about farm prices going up too much. Mm. They're, too, they're too high for that, that entire time. Um, now that doesn't mean that you don't reach a point where it is too high, but it's just been going on for a long while. And I think uh, you know the way um, people think about it is that there's there's some unit farm out there that that. It has to have a certain price, but the thing is, you get to a certain scale, um, and your business opportunities change in that. So again, it's not really because it's, it's not a commodity as such. Um, you know, it is quite differentiated, and you have, a, you know, if you're if you're a good farmer, mm. um, you can 
there's a lot of things you could do on that land. Yeah, so this is where the yield things. comes in, right? Yeah, so, it is. Yeah. So you have the asset itself, but then it's what you do with it. And if you have um, yes. uh, great management um, and um, uh, produce that people want to buy, whether it's beef, and certainly some of Australia's richest people um, have been buying uh, vast tracts of um, cattle yes. land, Gina right. Reinhardt being the main one. Hi, Gina. Um, um, uh, but getting a, a positive yield from that. But of course, you know, the land sizes we're talking, there are like vast tracts mm. of country. Um, whereas then there's this question of, well, if I want to get into farming or if a pension fund wants to invest in something, you know, how do they, how do they, how do those types of investors assess the quality and the potential of the land? Um, I, I think they've got, um, they have knowledge of the, Farmland about where where most of them are basic because most of them aren't Australian. They're often US, often Canadian, even a few European ones as well. And they come here with uh, looking at that. So, and and this is the thing about this is the thing about Australia being um, looking cheap to someone but expensive to someone here. Mm-hmm. So, and I think the a lot of the resistance to it in Australia is that you know there's for people to enter into farming now as a uh, as, a, as like a, a young person who's had a few years' experience either on a farm or with their family and they want to go out on their own and do things, that's getting very, very expensive because it, for two reasons. What, one is that basically the sort of per hectare price of the land is high, but the other part of it too is that the scale of the farm is also much larger than it used to be as well. So there is um, – and all those – so it's, it, it's kind of – there's an issue there with the scale up of the farming and there's um, – um, it's not like the pro- residential property market where yeah. you can get a foot on the ladder by you know buying a, a, an affordable apartment, uh, yes. and then trying to um, build from there. Mm. Um, yeah, it, it, to to be to have a, a profitable uh, uh, operation and for the land to be making some kind of return, um, you need to buy a lot of it. Yeah, and I, and I think that um, that the, those larger farms. It's, it's it, things, it, this has been happening, um, you know. For hundreds of years, so the mm. the it's it, it's not new, but it, it the, the challenge just goes up there every time. Is if, if you're on a larger place, um, your ability to afford and reach out to specialists off off farm, your scale and the spend on those things is is larger. So, and so that, that does con- that does concern some people because there is a there's an aspect of uh, farming that's always about the family and about you know being there, passing it on through generations and. And you know, husbanding the land correctly and so on to to make it viable for future generations. So, you know, there is there's an emotional heartstring here as well that um, is a problem. And, and what about then? Uh, you very briefly mentioned climate risk earlier. Uh, I am genuinely fascinated by this because um, obviously in Australia, you know, there's um, we have this uh, mounting evidence of that there are increased uh, extreme events, and um, they don't typically happen in high-intensity agricultural land, except Queensland with the floods, uh, et cetera, where we have, where, where uh, a couple of years ago we had, didn't we have like huge amounts of the cattle herd um, lost um, to water? Um, oh, there, there was a, a huge amount. It was pretty, it was, it was awful for the businesses involved and quite substantial. There were substantial numbers at an industry scale and that, that was, and that was not very good, but I think the relative to what the drought has done in terms of mowing it down, just because there's no feed there, um, right. it's 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 not insignificant, but it, the drought is actually a bigger factor. But the, the, your point about the climate change of the land, I, I find it fascinating too. I, I don't, I'm at the beginning of my understanding of this, to be honest, because it's there is there is a thing that says 
you know, um, there's a mode of thought, and I don't know whether it's true or not, verified by the science or whatever, is that, you know, the dry area is creeping south. So we're losing the kind of high rainfall zone. Um, um, yes, it's there around the coast, yep. but it gets thinner and it goes southward. So the thing is, what comes down from the north, so you get some more arid land, which so it turns into cropland. So, yeah. A little, um, bit, little bit like the wine region in Europe is starting to move in a certain direction. Uh, and in well. Australia, certain yep. grapes are yep. able to be cultivated in different yeah, places. That's, now. That, that, yeah. that's right. And, and you know, you have, you, you have stories about viticulturists who are kind of at the extent of what they can do in terms of canopy management just because it's got warmer where they are. But uh, what is it that comes down from the equator with that <laughs> is, is the question. So, so it gets warmer. Um, so th- do we get more wet tropics in the north of Australia? And is that, is that different? So like... Uh, I don't know that. I'm just trying to think through through, through the issue, and, I, and, the, and the issue is I just don't think we really understand it all that well. Mm. Um, you know, and you know, I see some. Of the, you talked about some of the, the people who are investing large sums in northern Australia. Is um, sometimes I wonder if, if part of the thought process there is that 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 we're going to get more wet tropics up there, so the nature of what you can do up there. Um, will change into something more intensive over time. Right, and of course, there's all these other things that come with it. So there's uh, general risk of maybe losing uh, a, a year's work or a season's work, um, and then you know if you have um, uh, again, I don't you know I, I'm not sure. What I know there are certainly certainly feels like there are more cyclones and uh, and uh, tropical lows that come in over the north of Queensland, um, uh, but uh, you know if they even just the number of tropical lows um, was to increase, then that would change. Uh, the rainfall levels and maybe they start moving further south, etc. And because that affects like your insurance outlook, for example, right? So like Definitely. how do you insure the farm? Uh, I know in Queensland insurance is a really big uh, talking point at the moment for all sorts of reasons, um, particularly up north. Uh, people finding that they can't just get insurance for basic things, you know. Yeah. Um, but, um, you know, in this environment where there's so much, so many questions about the climate, mm. um, obviously becomes a question of like, you know, how stable can you think about, you know, your income from uh, a piece of land? Oh, it's a very good way of put, uh, thinking about it too because it's, you know, most farmers will have it in mind that over, you know, a 10-year period they'll have good years, um, bad years um, and, um, and you know, over time um, you'll make enough money. So good years in the sense that they'll have lots of output or good years and they'll have high prices um, there are some bad years in there as well. So, you, but your profitability is over that kind of time frame. It's not any one year shouldn't you know, it shouldn't be too much of a problem. But, but you know, if your if your variability changes, then you know the the calculations to do for your per hectare land prices and so on is if is that changing? Uh, so if that changes your you know your ten year mix for one for for one of a better description is it it changes with it. So. Um, but I think, at the, I think at this stage, a lot of it is seems to be very speculative, and I think um, there's a lot more talking about it than there is real knowledge about it, to be honest. Mm. Um, mm. And, well, I, and well, I, I'm certainly not not in any place to to uh, make make anything to think firmly about it in any way as yet. Yeah, well, it's it's certainly certainly something that a lot of people are really good at is talking, right? Yeah. <laughs> so Speaking of talking, yeah. here's some two questions that I've got for you. So I, I I do have two questions, and that's it that I've got for the day. I, I've got one. Okay, so I'll, I'll do I'll do my one really quickly, Paul, and then I'll do a clanger at the end, and then we'll close it off. I reckon. Okay. What do you reckon? Okay, here we go. Plant based. Are you seeing any 
Eddie, I mean, this is off script. Sorry, I'm going. I'm going off piste on this one. Plant based food is a thing. I've had a lot of investment opportunities put in front of me, and trying to diversify away from being beef, you know, on uh, on what we do. What? Where do you see the future of this going, and, and affecting what's uh, what's ahead of us in the in in the in all of these things uh, are in some way affected by that. Oh, it's probably two streams of the plant based. One of it has it's been the most successful now, just because the tech. Um, is it's much more advanced, and so it, it's become. I'm not sure it's a big part of the market, but it's just the variety and the the improvement, the quality, and the scalability of what they're doing has got got a lot better, a lot very quickly. Um, so I, I think it's an important part of the market, particularly people who you know the the number of people who um, who don't want to eat meat anymore, um, either because for health reasons or increasingly more. Uh, their their ethical Conscious, framework, yeah. yeah, yeah. So they don't want to do that. So, so that's there. That's there for that. The other stream that has been had been much slower is the the, the cultured meat. So it's basically driven, basically created in the lab. Yeah, yeah. And it is actually genuinely meat as such. It's never been in the biological factory that is a cow or a pig or a chicken, uh, but it is. Produced I, by the same process. I class that all in the same category. Yeah, it is. But that sort of stuff was like you know, um, a bit over ten years ago. That cultured stuff that in the lab, it's it's a hundred thousand dollar hamburger stuff. Um, but the thing is, the number of startups, um, the number of people it, uh, on that cultured stuff now. Um, it just seems to have rocketed in the last few years. So there's a lot of money flowing into it. So and TVs were a luxury once kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That, that, that's that. Yeah, that's right. So there's a, there's a big rep. So I think there's there's a lot to get. There's a lot to go on there. Um, and I guess this is the other the you know the the, the wedge in there that is coming in there is that um, the kind of you, know, f- you, know, you get to not to an inflection point or a tipping point as such, but I think it speeds that is that the um, um, bringing in an externality like carbon and global warming into the pricing, um, that that is a bit of a game changer over time, and and it's it's coming. So so people are trying to think of ways to deal with now. We don't really know what the outcome of that is yet because it may be that um, putting a bit of seaweed into cattle feed or giving putting a mask on them and st- stuff that come out. I don't know what tech solution is there, so um, I, I'm not sure. And, and the, the good thing about the way, particularly about going about here in Australia and many other countries, is is they're putting a price on the carbon and working out who can abate it the most, <laughs> and 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 pay them to do that. So um, and so, we, so there is there's a range of technologies there. So, um, but I think the uh, that that, the, that those those meat things have a big future, um, because. Because the thing with cattle in the end is, uh, or animals in general, is they're they're the best factories we had for it. Maybe our technology is now at the point where we can design a better one. Mm. Very interestingly put. And my question is related. Um, uh, so um, kind of like at 40,000 feet on the technology question in relation to meat there, but um, double that and let's just look at like the impact uh, of um, what is emerging technology in, in agriculture at the moment. I know right now there are farmers all around the world and including in Australia where we have some fantastic um, uh, agriculture uh, technology companies, um, uh, you know, uh, farmers using drones to survey their land. They've got sensors in the soil to understand like how better to manage it, and it all feeds back into an app, and it gives the farmer alerts, and it's just like all of this stuff is cool and uh, uh, like cool to talk about, but also really interesting because part of that whole thing is like if you can improve your yield or 
um, you know, your profitability or, you know, uh, reduce waste and uh, protect the land better. There's all sorts of good things that supposedly come out of that. And that's kind of a promise. Um, but how's the progress on that? I, uh, it's getting there. And again, this is part about the, the thing to larger farming because you've got to spend on these things. And that probably works better at scale. Um, what you're also doing, though, is you're liberating the knowledge because a lot of uh, farmers years ago, upon some of the handover uh, from you know, senior to junior on the farm, a lot of it was about handing over uh, knowledge that basically resided in senior's head. So they, they knew that this paddock was like that and you didn't do that to that paddock because you didn't need to, but you needed to put a lot of fertilisers on that bit of that paddock and that stuff. And that's all just detailed stuff it's sitting there in the head. What you're doing with this, all this data capture is capturing all that information and bringing it out. Um, the thing with it is, and it's a challenge that most people face with, um, data capture is actually pretty easy once you spend the money on it. What is what difficult do you do with it? Yeah, it's, yeah. yeah, it is. What is very difficult is to collate it into a form um, that doesn't require um, a deep knowledge of programming and mathematics to do and things like that. Um, and most people don't have that. Um, uh, so, you know, there's still a, the bridge from the data to the actual usable knowledge is still being built, I think. So, and I think I think it's there. I think people are racing ahead. So, you know, the, you know there's been so many more false dawns in AI than um, mm-hmm. the Farlap had starts. But, but it, you know, it's, it doesn't mean we're not going to get there at some point. And um, fundamentally, do you, would you anticipate it to be deflationary for prices the way it has been? Uh, because there's this whole thing of, like, everybody will eat better um, and food will be more accessible because we better we'll be better at doing it. Well, I, I, but I think it's that's part of the story, though. I think the um, you know I could have been bullish on ag long term um, just because more people in the world were and China's a story about this because there's so many people, so many people. But it's the world broadly is their incomes are higher and they eat more food early in that process and they get then they get better food as they get rich. So you know there's a um, part of the response we're seeing in the tech. Um, some of it is environmental, and that, that is a, that is an important driver of it. But it's just the actual quantity you want. You know, if the third, or second, third, and fourth billion people are going to eat steak, um, it's in, it's it, that's 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 just a massive um, change that has to happen. So that capacity is not there yet to do it. It's the same as you know, it's not a question. You go back to the question about like if every person in China is driving a car, what does that do to greenhouse gas emissions yep. and so on. So that, so again, it's, it's kind of an issue of the scale of this, this thing. is like the countries are truly rich and, and uh, consuming at the highest levels are still not a large fraction of the world, uh, but more of the world's getting there. So so the, the, this bulge we have of countries getting richer, it's a demand on everything and it's happening in ag too. So we have this, um, so this stream of innovation can be seen as, um, constraints we see on the supply side. So we, we've got more and more um, uh, values we stick on our food. So previously it had to be like edible, then it had to be fresh, and then it had to look right, mm. and now it has to not not harm anything in doing it, it and it's got to be done with a low carbon foot. So you've... Yeah, can't you, cast a shadow. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's, that's exactly right. Show. Yeah. yeah, so it is. All so that thing. We've yeah. got a whole show lined up for it, and you're going to be a part of that one for sure. <laughs> Thank the, you. Um, I, I, I weigh that up against... Uh, if you told... If you told a Chinese man two generations ago that people today would be eating pork twice a week, they would not have believed you. That 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 the world changes and no, and that's quite right. That's 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 what I now my final one, and then I'm going to read my ad in my nice voice. But um, the, the final one with infinite funds, you've got a couple of couple of bills sitting in your skyrocket. What do you buy? 
And it's a, it's the Warren Buffett buy as well. So this is off piste again. Um, it's the Warren Buffett buy. You can't look at it. Sit in your portfolio for super fund. Yeah, I think I, I like a lot of the potential for uh, tropical zone mm. land mm. to be um, more wet tropics. The other thing I'm interested in is, you know, there's a lot of frozen tundra out there in Siberia. Yeah. And so, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of land that you look at the land service and this is not agriculturally viable right now. Not now. If all of a sudden it's warmer there, yeah. what are the, how does that change yeah. that? That's it. That, it, that it's, it seems so really obvious, that sort of thing. Uh, may I? You know, and everybody, yeah, yeah, and everybody talks about, you know, like the other flip side of that is, you know, talks about places that are currently cold, like Scotland, uh, cold and wet, um, might be worth having a little... Uh, a little, little something like that. Yeah, there yeah. you go. Well, <laughs> it's it's it sounds cynical, and it sounds cynical. I would love for that to not be the case, and I would love for that to you know. The, oh, the, I definitely the, don't think the, it's funny. <laughs> it's not. Fu- it's not funny. It is a cynical thing, though. If you look at it and just go, okay, well, you know, we're, we're going to try our best for that for that investment thesis to not work. Yeah. I think right. it's probably the best way to go. Hold on. Yes. Open trader for professional traders and those who want to invest like a pro from only five dollars a trade. Open trader, invest like a pro from only five dollars a trade. Over to you, Paul. You really are good at that. Um, oh, don't forget to subscribe <laughs> to the show, rate us, and leave a review um, wherever you get your podcast. I love it. I do. I do appreciate our sponsors as well too. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, thanks, Open Trader. It helps us uh, stay on the air. Um, and great team to work with too. Yeah. Um, you can find us on iTunes at the BIP Show. We're on Twitter. It's at the underscore BIP underscore Show. And we're on Facebook too. Uh, just search the BIP Show. Uh, James has a website now, which is hosting all the extras we can't get to on the show, including a few trades and positions folks might want to have a look at based on the chat here today. We've got a few out of this show for sure. Tobin's uh, team is the the CBA research team, uh, and you can apply to him to get their research. uh, and it's uh, like I said, it's it's well worth um, uh, well worth following. Fascinating insights, and I just again, I think just so um, uh, always so grounding uh, to read to sort of think about those really underlying things in the um, uh, in the global economy. So, uh, uh, Tobin Gorey from uh, CBA, thanks so much for coming on the Bip Show. A pleasure, guys. Thanks for having me along. Uh, so like I said, don't forget to hit subscribe, rate the show, tell your friends, tell your mum. Uh, we love those five-star ratings. Thanks, everybody. The show is produced by Rick Salter. Uh, we'll catch you next time. Thanks for listening.